I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I hope you know and realize uh, how humbling uh, the gospel is to your pastor. I think one of the hardest things for any man called to the gospel ministry is realizing as he has the responsibility, according to Paul, even the obligation to preach the gospel of God's grace to those that the Lord has graciously put before him. <clears throat> How hard it is to know who and what that man is that stands in the pulpit in his own mind, heart, and conscience. You know, I... You know, I, not, not that I'm the worst of the worst, but I, tell you, I realize each and every day just how sinful I am. I like, like, like Isaiah, I have to say I am an unclean man, tragically. It's not something that I confess proudly, but it's just a reality. I am a sinner that gets the privilege and opportunity to talk to other sinners. But we've got something good to talk with one another about. I have a message of hope and comfort and security and peace. I have a good hope through grace that I rest in by God's grace every moment of my life, whether it's good time or bad time. And, you know, when you, when you look at passages like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, especially in light of where we all came from and all the things that we were taught uh, wrongly, but innocently, because I still believe the people were just doing the best that they could do. You know, you can't ask somebody that's ignorant of something to tell something they don't know. <laughs> they can't do it. It'd be impossible. But we were all put under such constraints. You know, such, we, we lived our lives in fear. That's, what, that's why I read that in Hebrews chapter 2 to you. Or, that's too, too many twos. <laughs> You know, that Christ, by his obedience unto death, delivered us from what? Fear. Fear. Huh? I've entitled this message this morning, The Terror, The Terror of the Lord. I remember years ago when I first got involved, Pam and I first got involved in religion. The, the third go round. <laughs> And one of the first books that the guy I had made my last false profession of religion under told me, you've got to read it. It's the best tract that's ever been written. And it was by a guy that is a hero among uh, Reformed people. It's named Jonathan Edwards. And the name of the message was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And after I read it, I was like, just, oh, this is outstanding, this is wonderful, this is everything sinners need to hear. And then I read the history, I read a, there was a book written about why he wrote it. And historically, and this is where it gets off the rails. They said as he preached that message, sinners in the hands of the angry God, the very first time that God made it so vivid to people in that tabernacle that he was preaching in, that it was as if they were all standing on the brink of hell and all falling in, that people were holding on to the pews and holding on to the railings and holding on to the columns to keep from falling into hell itself. And that sounds so 
wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I mean not, not wonderful in the sense people falling in hell, but wonderful. It, it made people so worried about going to hell. Well, folks, holding on to a pew or a column will not deliver a person from hell. And salvation is not so much about believing that I have, I fully deserve hell and I need to be kept somehow from going into it. Salvation is knowing that in spite of the fact that I do deserve to fall into hell, what's God done? He's reconciled me to himself. That I'm justified before this God. That he's at peace with me. I, I'm not dealing with an angry God. It's not the wrath of God. This, this is what preaching the gospel is all about. It's not the wrath of God that leads me into repentance. What is it? It's the goodness of God. That God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not charging their trespasses. That's, that's what sinners need to hear. Because they know, I mean, deep down in their heart mind, they, they know they're not as good as they should be. They're trying putting up their best front, got their shoulder to the grindstone, pushing it as hard as they can. They don't need to be told that God's going to damn them for that. What do they need to be told? They need to be told how that in spite of what you are and what you think about yourself and what Satan accuses you of and what the law accuses you of, that God will... That there's somebody out there... Abraham believed on him who justifieth the ungodly. David declared the blessedness of the man to whom God imputeth righteousness, holiness, here we go, without works. That's good news. Uh, it's good news to me. And it should be good news to all those that are here. And we left off in the last message on 2 Corinthians with this declaration. And this is what they used to scare me to death with. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. Now listen to me. We know this, and I think I pointed this out to you a couple weeks ago. We know that both believing and unbelieving sinners will be present at this judgment seat of Christ. We know that. But how they appear, whatever this word appear means, however they appear before this judgment seat will be infinitely different. To all those who are Christ by God's electing grace, to those who are God's by Christ's redeeming grace, to those who are God's by God the Holy Spirit's regenerating grace, this will be a declarative judgment that will make manifest to their minds as well as to the view and understanding of all the world that in spite of what the world thinks of them or in spite of what they might think of themselves, what are they? They are the sons and daughters of the living God. Adopted sons, fully entitled. Fully entitled to everything that the Lord Jesus Christ purchased for them by his obedience unto death. And you get this right. 
These believing sinners that stand before Christ at this declarative judgment, there is absolutely, positively, no possibility. You hear me? No possibility of their condemnation. That's the way they used to present this. There's going to be somebody going to be at this judgment that's been in the faith all their lives, and what are they going to find out? Oop, missed. That ain't what this is about. Not at all. Therefore, now no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus. How much? No. None. Walk not after the flesh. What are they walking after? After the Spirit. Believe in what God says. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, what has it done? It's made me free. Huh? It's made me free from the law of sin and death. Paul said this, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who's he that condemns? Who's the only one that condemns? It's Christ that died, yea, rather that's risen again, who's even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Can any of that separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? So this judgment will not be where God's going to separate some of those that were on the straight and narrow and cast them into eternal condemnation. It's impossible. But to those unbelieving, whether they're immoral and ungodly pagans, or whether they're sincere, moral, religious sinners, this judgment, you know what it will be for? It will be for their condemnation. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, what day are we talking about? We're talking about this day of the judgment seat of Christ. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out devils? And in thy name have we not done many wonderful works? This is at that, that, that great, great white throne judgment is what we're talking about. The judgment seat of Christ. The Father's committed all judgment to who? To the Son. And I will profess to them. See, this is the difference. No condemnation for the child of God the elect of God, but for those that are not His, then will I profess to them, and this is, this is what's so important about words, I never knew. I never knew you. What's that mean? I literally, that word knew, it means an intimate relationship between a man and a woman that results in a child. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore him a son. It's the most intimate. What's he say? I never loved you. And since I never loved you, what? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. What's the problem? They've preached. They've cast out demons. They've done many wonderful works. What's the problem? Here's the problem. They didn't do the will of the Father, which is in heaven. You say, well, see there, they didn't go to church. They didn't give their money. They weren't moral enough, wasn't kind enough. They weren't compassionate enough. They didn't study enough. They didn't pray enough. No, that's not what, that's, that's, 
A lot. Saul of Tarsus did all of that. And what did he call it? Philippians 3. Done. What's the will of the Father that they haven't done? This is the will of him that sent me. That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again to the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me. What's his will? That everyone that sees the Son, sees him as what? Is the one sent. Is the surety. Is Messiah. Is the Savior. Believes on him. And what Mary said, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. And that brings us to this verse I want us to look at this morning. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. That's a frightening statement, isn't it? The terror of the Lord. We persuade men. This is this verse from Young's literal translation. Having known, therefore, and this is the right word, the fear of the Lord. Having known, made known, therefore, the fear of the Lord, we persuade man. The original word translated terror, it means fear. I told Bill this this week. But you know what the best definition of it is, of this word fear? And we're going to talk about this more in a minute. It means the reverence for one's husband. The reverend, we're in verse 11. The reverence for one's husband. That's what it means. That's the best translation of it. It's translated fear 41 times in the New Testament. And it's translated three times by the word terror. And that word translated knowing means to know. That is to say to get understanding of to understand or to perceive with any or all of the senses. So he says, perceiving with the senses that God's given me, the reverence of one's husband. He said, that don't make no sense to me. Well, you know, Paul told those, when you think about it, whatever Paul and his elect know, to say whatever they've gained understanding of, been given understanding of, anything that they do understand by God's grace or anything that they perceive, it's not something the unregenerate mind possesses and can do on its own. Matter of fact, Paul told those at Rome, what did he say? He said, of all men and women by nature, you and me included before regeneration conversion, what one thing he said that all of us share in common, there is no fear. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That brings up a critical and essential question. What's the terror of fear of the Lord? You ever thought about that? Or did the scriptures make it clear what the fear of the Lord is? Or I'd say to even make it more personal, do I fear the Lord? That's, that's what's important. Remember what I told you the word terror means? It means fear or better reverence for one's husband. You know what the prophet Isaiah declared concerning our Lord Jesus Christ? Listen to you. This is Christ and his people. For thy maker. 
It's got the word is. It's in italic. For thy maker, this is what he calls him, thine husband. The Lord of glory. The Lord of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. The Apostle Paul told those at Ephesus, told you and me included, for the husband is the head of the wife, listen to this, even as Christ is the head of the church, what, his bride, are we not called his bride? And he's the Savior of the body. This terror or fear of the Lord, you know what? God instills it in the heart, mind, and understanding of his elect in regeneration and conversion, knowing, that is to say, having been given understanding, or understanding, perceiving, therefore, the terror of the Lord, what do we do when we have this terror? We persuade men. We persuade men. That word translated, we persuade, means to persuade. That is to say, to induce one to believe by words. Now think about this, because we talk, this comes on, this, the, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, it comes on the heels of what was just said in verse 10, which what was said in verse 10, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And most of the commentators that I read on this, they said that this terror of the Lord is terror of the judgment. Fear of the judgment, fear of standing there and having to give an account. I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. I'm not real certain about that's what that's talking about. And I know that to be the case because you think about this. Neither Paul nor any of God's redeemed are trying to induce men to simply believe what? That there's a judgment seat one day. And that everybody's going to stand before it. Our goal as God's children, what is, it's singular. Our goal is to encourage sinners to rest where? Not in the fact that they're going to stand before God give an account of what they've done. Our goal is to get them to in, encourage them to rest in Christ alone as the Lord their righteousness, which enables God to rest in that righteousness, which enables God to be just when he justifies the ungodly. King David declared the fear of the Lord. He said this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. A good understanding have all they that do. His praises endureth forever. David's son Solomon, wise Solomon, he said this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. He learned that from where? Huh? God taught it to him by his daddy. That, you know what that is? You know what, that, you know what this shows me my responsibility is to my children, to my grandchildren, my friends? Huh? You that are parents, grandparents, aunts, and uncles. The fact that he, I, listen, he didn't, he didn't believe this just because his daddy said it. God taught it to him, just like he taught it to David, just like he teaches it to us. But I tell you what, you don't teach them. I, I, I know God's sovereign. I, I know that. I know people they get all wound up with that. But God is absolutely sovereign. He's going to save who He will. He'll bring His people to true faith and true repentance. But He always uses means. And his means of bringing his people to true faith and true repentance is what? Words. His word. Not mine. Not yours. 
His Word. David rehearsed the Word of the Lord before his son Solomon. And what does his son do? Repeats because he's been taught of God what his father taught him. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Turn over to Psalm 130. Hold your place there. Turn over to Psalm 130. We preached an entire message on this. And I didn't go back and look, but I got a feeling that what I'm probably finna say to you, if I went back over and I looked at the notes in that sermon, it's probably going to be just about word for word what I'm about to say to you now. Psalm 130, look at verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquity, Thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquity. O Lord, who shall stand? You see that? Mm. That word translated shouldest mark, it means to observe or keep. Observe or keep. It's like recording in a record book. That word who shall stand means remain or endure. So you think about the meaning of this question King David asked. Lord, if you observe or keep or write down or record my sins, my iniquities in a book, who can remain? Who can endure? Could you? Could I? I know there were some folks there in Matthew 7 that we read from earlier. They thought they could endure because they're appealing to what? What they've done. Answer that question. You know, when you see a question, like I've told you, it can be answered in affirmative or negative. Lord, if you mark my iniquity, who can stand? It's always answered in the negative. So the answer is what? Nobody can. If King David couldn't, we can. But thank God he didn't stop. He kept writing. What's the next verse say? But forgiveness with thee. Forgiveness for thee, that thou mayest be feared. That lengthy phrase, that thou mayest be feared, one word in the original. It means reverence, honor, or respect. Listen to me. Only those who have experienced and understood forgiveness can and do reverence, honor and respect the true and living God and every attribute of his character is a just God and a Savior. See, this, this is what Paul's declaring to us in our text. Turning back, turn back over here. He says, knowing, being confident of, therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade man. Our Lord stated it best. It is written in the prophets. They shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard, hath heard what? That God will by no means clear the guilty. That he cannot account me to be something that I am based on something that I've done. Huh? That's, that's an awe-inspiring thing to realize that you are really ungodly. It renders you hopeless, doesn't it? It forces you and me, if we've truly seen our ungodliness, how far short we fall of a righteousness that enables God to be just when he justifies a sinner, 
You know what we do? It forces us to look somewhere else. Because we can't look, I can't look to me. Can't look to anything I've done, anything I've been able to do. I have to look somewhere else. Let's learn to the Father. What does every one of them that's taught of God, that's seen the Son, they see the Son, and they've learned to the Father, where do they go? They go to church. <laughs> they go to the baptismal pool. No, they come to Him. And what Christ said, coming to me. Who's to come? Are you laboring and heavy laden? Do you see yourself a sinner? Do you see yourself hopeless? Where's their hope? Come to him. Come to Christ. His righteousness alone. Our Lord made it so clear, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God. And who else do we know? Who else do we have an intimate relationship with? Jesus Christ, whom you, the true and living God, sent. Sent to do what? To reconcile sinners to himself. All those taught of God know and understood, understand that God could, and thank God he did reconcile sinners to himself by the sacrifice of his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They understand, if you believe the gospel this morning, you understand what Isaiah meant when he declared of our God, Jehovah, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my sake. Didn't do it for you. He did it because he was going to be just when he justified you. So what did he have to do? He, thank God he didn't put it dependent on me. He blotted them out. He put them away. And since he's blotted them out for his own sake, thank God for this, and will not remember thy sins. Not coming up. Ever. And I tell you, this godly fear, that's what that is. Knowing that God put all my sins where? On his dear son. This godly fear isn't something a sinner works themselves up into. It's in something that comes about by reading sinners in the hands of an angry God and seeing yourself hanging out over hell. That's not what it's about. It's seeing that a God who was at enmity, we were at enmity against, that he did everything to settle the score, to make salvation a surety for every object of his love. Oh, this is something God has to put in your heart. Listen to you. And I will give them one heart. One way. Why give them one heart and what? What does that say of every one of God's children? We all got the same heart. And we're all in the same way. Which way? The way of righteousness, the way of peace. Why? Here it is. That they might fear me forever. For the good of them. And their children after them. Now listen to this. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I listen, I will put my fear in their hearts. He'll put his fear 
in every one of his children's hearts. Why? That they shall not depart from me. Let me state this as simply and as clearly as I can. Is God given knowledge of transgression forgiven? Of iniquity covered? Of sins not imputed? It causes the one who's forgiven to truly fear and truly reverence the true and living God for his infinite grace and mercy that he has so freely and richly bestowed upon me as such an unworthy object of his grace. Notice what Paul says next. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. Let me read it to you in Young's little translation. And to God we are manifest, and I hope also in your consciences to be made manifest. That original word translated, we are made manifest, it's one word, which Paul used multiple times in this section of Scripture. In verse 10, here's the same word that's translated, we are made manifest. We must all appear. We must all, there it is, appear. We are made manifest, appear. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, it's translated basically the same as it is here, might be made manifest. In every instance, so you know it, it always means the same thing. It means to make manifest or visible or known what had been previously hidden or unknown, to manifest whether by words or by deeds or in any other way. These words have to be viewed, have to be considered in light of what Paul's relationship was to these believers. What had God used him to do at Corinth? How'd the gospel get to Corinth? Huh? He had said it back at the beginning of this section, therefore seeing we have this ministry. What ministry? This ministry of reconciliation that he's going to call it at the end of this chapter. He says, as we have received mercy, what do we, we don't faint, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation, that's the same word again, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, Paul is saying what? Same thing here as he said in, in our text. I preach the truth of the gospel to every man, to every woman, in every situation. Paul had been the vessel that the Lord had chosen to proclaim the gospel to those at Corinth. And now what's happened? Just like every other place, every one of God's gospel preachers went, these false prophets came in, and what did they do? They called into question not only Paul's message, but they called into question his motive. Why is he doing what he's doing? We know what he was formerly. We know he was one of us, Now he's out there with y'all. What's, what's going on? And so Paul tells them flat out, what? God knows my heart. That's what he means. I manifest to God. God knows why I'm doing what I'm doing. The only constraint on it is the love of Christ constrains him. That's all. Paul tells them and he tells you and me that both his motive 
and his message was clearly manifest and made known to God himself who sees all and knows all. It's similar to the words in Hebrews. Neither is there any creature that is not made manifest, not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God knows our motives. He knows why you're here today. I'm here because I think if I'm not here, I'm probably going to go to hell. Wrong motives. Just the way you give, keep your money. I'm telling you, motive is everything. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. That's the motive for everything. These false teachers had questioned whether or not Paul preached the gospel. So Paul appeals to the judge of all the earth and said, God knows Paul preached the gospel. Paul told these same believers in the previous epistle, for though I preached the gospel, I have nothing to glory for necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe unto me, if I preach not the gospel. That was his only goal. Why was he so adamant about what he declared? Why was he so dogmatic? Because like you and me, he knew and believed what his Lord taught. That our Lord taught the truth. You hear me? The truth will set men free. Like what Mr. Gill wrote on this part of this verse. He said, God, who searches the heart, tries the rain, who knows all actions and the secret springs of them, to him the sincerity of our hearts and the integrity of our conduct are fully manifest. We can appeal to him that it is his glory and the good of souls we have in view in all our ministries, ministration. In other words, Paul said, the only reason I'm here, the only reason God keeps me here is to do one thing, to seek his sheep. But then look at the last part of the verse. And I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. That word I trust means hope. I hope. Paul was hopeful that all that he had preached to them and all that he had done confirmed to them that, you know what? He was sent of God. He was sent of God to them, and that he was God's ambassador. As God's ambassador, he had been truthful with them about man and been truthful with them about the God whom he served. It's as if Paul was saying to them that, that he was certain that they too could testify or witness of his faithfulness and honesty as well as the links which he had went to. And the godly concern they had, all of them had, for the welfare of the souls. I mean, it always brings to my mind the words Paul spoke to those elders at Ephesus right before we left them. It says, and when they were come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews. Now listen to this. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and taught you both publicly, when I preach in public, or house to house, when I'm in private with you, what the message does not change. What? Testifying both to the Jews 
and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God, even faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you, the Apostle Paul was a living, breathing example of John's words. We know we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. You know, in spite of all the problems, and there were some problems in this church, where they're not, go read about them. Despite all the problems and difficulties that existed in this fellowship at Corinth, you know what? Paul loved them. Paul loved them. And he sought ever and always that which was for God's glory and for their good and for the advancement of the kingdom of God in their lives and in that local assembly. Let me say this. He did everything that he did. You know why he did all that? Knowing, therefore, the fear of the Lord, reverence and respect for the husband, his, his head, Right? Wives, submit yourselves under your husbands. You know, everybody jumps on that. I see that. Go read that in Ephesians. It's not so much about the marriage. You know what it's about? It's about Christ and his relationship to his bride, to his church. We'll stop right there. We'll come back and pick up verse 12 next Sunday. I appreciate your presence. Lord bless you. Keep you till we see you next Lord's Day. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed.